I'm going to read uh, from the King James Version because many of us find it more familiar. And if you'd like to follow along, it's on page 137 of the hymnal. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. During my whole ministry of about 38 years now, I've never chosen to preach on this text, the 23rd Psalm. Frankly, I've been afraid, because this text is possibly the most familiar of all the passages in the Bible, and it's the one, especially here at Boston Avenue, that is usually used in our funeral liturgy. So not only is it familiar, but it also has attached to it deep feelings and deep remembrances of folks. So I've been hesitant to actually preach on this text for fear of what I might say might take something away from one of those cherished memories. However, I believe there is a message here today for us. And I'll try to lift it out without messing up any of those cherished memories. To begin, obviously, the Lord is my shepherd is the language of poetry and metaphor. It's poetry which is meant to be put to music like all of the Psalms. These writings were used in worship in ancient Israel, primarily in temple worship, and especially for those high holy days and special celebrations like the coronation of a new king. Now, in case some of you are wondering why it is that Boston Avenue United Methodist Church sings the Psalms when hardly any other Protestant congregation does that, it's because we understand that this was their original function and the way the Psalms were used in worship from the earliest times. That's why the Psalms are sometimes called the hymnal of ancient Israel and its worship. Now, being poetry and metaphor, the Psalms are attempting to paint word pictures in the congregation's mind. Now, we remember most of the people in this time of history of ancient Israel were illiterate. They couldn't read, so they couldn't pick up their hymnal and read the Psalms or their Bible and read the Psalms. They were hearing them and learning them in the worship time. Now, the Psalms often are put down as couplets where one phrase and the next line match and or relate to each other. And that helped the people not only learn them, but also gave the congregation the cue for when their response was supposed to come in. Now, I'm not going to explain all the technical musical uses of the Psalms. You can ask Joel. He knows all about that, and he would be more than happy to explain to you how it all works. (laughs) 
But my main point here is that the Psalms, and particularly our beloved 23rd Psalm, is meant for congregational worship. And it's more a congregational expression than just the solo, you, me, God kind of expression. Now, of course, we can still use the Psalms as devotional reading, just as we can use the lyrics of our hymnal as devotional reading, because those words are so powerful and so full of meaning and insights. But let's remember that they were designed for worship. Now, let's look at the meaning of the words for now. The psalmist is singing God's praises. He's trying to tell us what God is like. The Lord is my shepherd. God is like a shepherd. In Bible times, the vast majority of the population was rural and agrarian. Herding sheep and goats was the major industry, to use our language today. So everyone knew what shepherds did. They took care of sheep and goats. They moved the flock from place to place, finding green grass and fresh water for their flocks. And with a good shepherd, all the needs of the flock were met. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All my needs are met. The shepherd had another role besides just providing for those needs of food and water. The shepherd was their guardian, their protector. So the still waters are to be contrasted with running, rushing waters like after a rainstorm. And we've seen lots of rushing water the last few days. And we know how swift the current could be that might catch a lamb who got too far into the water and would pull it out into deeper water. And then its thick fur would soak up all that water and it would drown. By contrast, still waters are safe. The shepherd finds the safe place to drink. And when it comes to the time to move the flock to a new pasture, the shepherd knows the way, the right path, the safest way to the new place. The wrong way would lead to rocky and barren, overgrazed land, or it could be the wrong path that would be treacherously narrow and and with sharp and deep drop-offs where one lamb or goat could bump another and knock it off into the ravine where it would be injured or maybe die. Well, what that means is leading me on the right path, again, is a matter of safety and security. The good shepherd will show me the safe way to go. Now, the second half of that verse says, He leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. Now, frankly, those words have always made me kind of pause and wonder, but never pause long enough to go look it up. I just never got around to it. For his name's sake, what does that mean? You know, I always kind of sense that, you know, I probably could answer a multiple choice question and get the right answer, but if I had to fill in the blank, I'd probably come up with the wrong words. Well, one of the commentaries explained what it means, for his name's sake. And it simply means for the sake and honor of God's name, meaning God's good reputation. It means God's own reputation is at stake here. You can really trust that God is going to pay close attention and take good care of you, if for no other reason than for his name's sake. Which means it's not a matter of your being worthy or deserving. God's doing it for his own reputation. 
Now, the theological backdrop here is that the children of Israel were chosen to be God's special people, not because they deserved it or were especially worthy more than anybody else. In the long view of salvation history, it was simply that God needed one group of people to be his special people so that their relationship that they would form would then shed a light to the nations. In other words, if they would obey and follow God's lead, their lives would be so blessed and so abundant that the rest of humanity would be drawn to the light of God's love and grace as seen in the lives of these special people. So, if that's God's agenda, God's not going to lead you astray. For the sake of his own reputation and honor, God is trying his hardest to keep us on the path. Now, God has to work hard because, like sheep, he knows we're liable to stray and wander off the path. Now, you remember Dr. Biggs referring to the 23rd Psalm last week. He did. He did. He explained the verse, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And he mentioned that the word follow is too weak a word for the Hebrew translation. It's more like pursue, like you're chasing someone, really trying to catch them and grasp them and hold them. Well, God's goodness and mercy aren't just tagging along behind, just moseying around back there behind us, but are in hot pursuit trying to embrace us and hold us with God's love. So God's agenda is proactive because, as our gospel lesson said that Eva Marie read, God understands he has other sheep that are not of this fold. God's intention is to be that light to the nations through the goodness that can be bestowed on the special people that he cares for and become a light to the nations, drawing everybody into that one fold under the one God. Well, then the next verse, even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, is still using the sheep imagery, but we know it really is talking about us and our fears and our worries in our human experience. But nevertheless, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, if we think about the sheep. How can they know that thou art with me in the darkest night? Well, the way they know is that they can feel the guiding tap of the staff or the rod guiding them. And they know, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me because I feel your presence with that tap. Now, there's other times that the rod and staff can be painful. If the sheep or goat tries to go the wrong way, it might get a good whack or a wallop saying, get back over there and stay in the group. And, of course, the shepherd had only the rod and staff to fight off the wolves and the thieves and the other predators. Rod and staff in those circumstances would be weapons, and they would not be comforting if used on you but comforting if you are a sheep and know that the shepherd is armed and ready to protect you. And as the New Testament said, and even lay down his life for your protection. 
Well, I have a personal rod and staff story of sorts. Many of you know that my youngest son, Bobby, grandfather Bob, has horses and likes to go trail riding. And when Bobby was four years old, he decided Bobby needed a horse. And so he scouted around Broken Arrow and found a place to board a horse there by the Broken Arrow 4-H Club. And Bobby got a horse. Now, this story isn't about the horse, but it's about the fact that having the horse put us out by the 4-H grounds, where there are other animals, sheep, and goats, and chickens, and rabbits, and barn cats, and coyotes that want to eat those critters. And last year, they even thought they saw a cougar out in that area. Well, I've been using an old abandoned garden plot And as I was out there doing my spring planting uh, several days ago, when one of the baby goats got out of its pen. Well, I went over to see if I could catch it and put it back. Well, baby goats are pretty quick. (laughs) And they jump. And they don't like to be caught and put back. So I slowly approached the baby goat, and it saw me coming, and it got scared, and it ran over to the fence and started bleeding, which meant, Mama, Mama, come get me, help me. And so I was trying to guide it over to the gate, because I'd seen there's a hole under the gate, and I thought maybe that's how it got out, and I could scare it to go back under It didn't want to go under. It was trying to push its way. It was kind of frightened and and wanted to get back in, but it didn't want to go through that hole. Well, I thought, well, if I just open the gate a little bit, then I can chase it in. You're right. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. As soon as I open the gate, there's the 20 or so other goats think I've come to feed them, and they come a-running. Well, I quickly closed the gate because I realized what a scene it would make for me trying to round up 20 goats and chase them back through the little gate. Well, as I stepped back and tried to think, what can I try next? The little goat went to the gate, pushed its head between the gate and the post that holds the latch, and then squeezed through. Well, I'd seen that a pole had fallen out that filled that gap between the gate and the latch pole. And so I put it back and I found a concrete block and I put it down there at that hole under the gate. But having experienced that and knowing I was preaching this sermon, I thought of of what I think is a true story. And it's about a farmer with a pig and the pig gets out of its pen. And the farmer is trying to chase the pig back into the pen. He sees the hole, and he's chasing it, and the pig just keeps running back and forth and won't go through that hole. And the farmer gets so angry, he picks up a rod, whacks that pig on the snout. It lets out a squeal and makes a beeline for the hole and goes back in the pen. Well, that rod and that staff of the shepherd can even be a comfort of sorts when we are trying to go astray. 
The little taps and even a good whack every once in a while can represent the natural consequences of bad choices, bad decisions, and wrong turns on the road to life. So like the baby goat or the ornery pig, sometimes we leave the safety and the security of the flock or the herd. We get out of the fold. There's no telling what we're looking for when we go out of the fold, but when trouble and hardship come, we remember the safety and the security of the fold. And we remember the good shepherd is there to bind up our wounds, to anoint us with the healing oils. And if we're smart, we'll make a beeline back to the fold. Now, in the same sense of care and safety, Of the sheep, those verses, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That sounds like the psalmist has shifted metaphors and is off with another example. However, one of the scholars mentioned that in the Middle East, in Lebanon and Syria, to be more precise, shepherds use the expression to set the table when they're preparing the field for their animals to graze. And what that means is they go out there and they pull up the poisonous weeds, they pull up the thorns, they look for the snakes and they chase them away and they destroy the nests of the scorpions as a way of preparing the table. And after they have done that, in the evening they gather up the sick and the puny ones and they make a mix of herbs and honey and give it to the puny ones to drink as a, as a little tonic. And then they anoint their sores with salve and oil. However, most scholars don't buy that, and they believe it really is a shift of metaphors. And now we're to imagine someone seeking sanctuary in the temple. If one was in conflict with someone more powerful, or if you had accidentally caused the death of someone... And the bereaved family, now your enemies, is seeking revenge, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth kind of thing. Well, you could seek sanctuary in the temple. And you could stay there night and day and take your meals there. Obviously, the voice of the psalmist is one who is innocent and is wrongly persecuted by enemies. And the shelter of God's temple and God's protection are so secure and the table is set that your cup overflows. Now, the phrase, you anoint my head with oil, can mean a couple of different things. First, it can mean the healing oil of of healing and wholeness that anointing can be. Sort of like our communion service at 1210, where we have anointing, we're healing and, and wholeness. In Rose Chapel, or it can mean something else. It can mean the symbolic gesture signifying that a special relationship with God is formed and a change of identity and, and who we are now and status. The anointing symbolizes a change in status for a special chosenness to be God's special person like the Messiah, the anointing of the Messiah or the anointing of a new king. Or for us Christians, like our baptism, like an anointing with the waters of baptism, signifying a change of status into a special relationship with God. So this is really big. This is significant. That relationship with God brings goodness and mercy for the rest of your life. 
And it's so wonderful you want to stay in the house of the Lord forever, your whole life long. Now, King James Version says, I will dwell in the house forever, which we Christians usually interpret to mean eternal life and heaven forever. However, the ancient psalmist's words really were, my whole life long, this earthly life. But with the Easter faith, as Christians, we can read heaven and eternal life back into the text. And that's okay. But in its original meaning is also equally important. And in fact, it gives meaning to our Easter hope. For that idea of dwelling in the house of the Lord means living in such a close relationship with God. It's like I live in God's house. I have a daily relationship with God. That closeness is associated with the house of the Lord. And if you're in the house of the Lord, you're of the household, you're part of the family. And you have that closeness, that relationship. But for us, that relationship of closeness is established in our worship. When we gather to sing God's praises and when we share the sacred meal at the table with our God. Now, the psalm is in the first person, I, me, my, but it's spoken by the congregation. And it also has the added aspect that God is one, but the flock are many. And if I'm part of the flock, then that's my identity as one of the family of God. And for us Christians, that means we're a part of the body of Christ, the church with the Good Shepherd, our Christ Jesus. Now, it's a part of our human nature and a part of how we're made, how we're created, that we are like sheep. We need the comfort and the security of the folks around us, our friends, our family, and the people who are important to us. We also need teachers and mentors. We need parents and guides to show us the right path and help us stay on the right path. But most of all, we need the kind of good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. Amen. Amen.